I'm particularly excited about this episode of Church and Culture because we're going to be talking about probably my favorite Catholic novelist, Sigrid Inset, who wrote, with certainty I say this, the greatest Catholic novel of the 20th century, Kristen Lovren's Daughter. We'll be talking with an editor for Ignatius Press, Vivian Dudrow, who's been on the show several times before. Over the last 40 years, she has written news articles, book reviews, columns for all the Catholic media, National Catholic Register, Catholic Sun, San Francisco. But also, she's been interviewed on radio, television programs, both Catholic and secular, on a variety of literary and religious topics. She participates with Father Joe Fessio and Joseph Pierce in the weekly Formed Book Club, which can be found at Formed, comma, YouTube, and Discerning Hearts. Vivian and her husband live in San Francisco and are the parents of four grown children. Vivian, I just want to say this. We're going to be talking about a book that Ignatius just published, and it's entitled Sigrid Unset, Reader of Hearts, and it's by Aidan Nichols, famous and justly famous and renowned Dominican theologian and writer. And I have read all the books in English by Sigrid Unset and about her, because I've taught a course on Sigrid Unset last year and caught up with all the books in English, reread some. I've been reading Unset in English since I was, even before I was a Catholic. And this book by Aidan Nichols is the best book on Sigrid Unset in the English language, by far. Anybody that wants to become conversant or wants to dig deeper into Sigrid Unset, buy this book. Don't even hesitate. Buy this book. Vivian, are you hearing me? I am. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. Well, look, I mean, first of all, Ada Nichols, unlike almost all of the other books that are in English, has had full command of primary sources in Norwegian, primary and secondary sources. He's quoting all kinds of works on Sigrid Unset in Norwegian, I think some in Swedish too. And he is, I mean, he's read in the letters, he's read everywhere. And, of course, being a great theologian, conversant with St. Thomas, of course, in Thomistic tradition, conversant with culture and history, he puts it together. I mean, here I am, you know, I just finished six months ago teaching a course on Sigrid Inset, and I'm learning stuff on page after page that I didn't know. I so, uh, too. I'm not nearly the Unset scholar that you are, although my love for her is probably equal to yours. But well, you remember many years ago I edited a book uh, with Ignatius on with essays and new translations on Unset, and I was delighted to see that Aidan Nichols uses the essays and translations from our Ignatius book. Yes, he does, and he even rounds out his conclusion with a lengthy quote from Erasmus Leva, who also wrote an essay in that book. And uh, yeah, yes, it, it, it really, uh, it really has been a tremendous joy and educational experience for me to read this this book. I learned so much. And you mentioned Father Nichols being a Dominican. You noticed, I'm sure, the Dominican and Thomist thread through the entire. A book I did not know that Sigurd Unset had been a third order Dominican. Did you know that? Oh yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I did. I did not realize how strongly the Dominican. Um, I, of course, I knew about her biography of Saint Catherine of Siena, which Ignatius Press brought back into print some years ago. But um, there, there's a lot I didn't know. This is still the well. In addition to, I mean, she uh, after she became Catholic, she expanded her beloved home in Lillehammer so it could uh, offer mass and the Dominican fathers from there near my monastery came up and they were her good friends, also the Dominican sisters and so really in the last in the last well during the 30s anyway uh, her, uh, her her home was a Catholic community to 
not just Dominicans, but to, you know, Catholics in Norway. So she was, I mean, she was uh, someone, she was a magnet, a magnet. And she, in fact, it's very interesting that Nichols makes a point about the home she built in Lillehammer, which is now still, uh, it's been preserved. It is a, a tourist uh, attraction, as it should be, because it was built so carefully. It was laid out, you know, with gardens and with. It, she was a a maniac about be- in about the beauty of the home. She was she had a botanist knowledge of flowers and plants and bushes, and she had a of course having been married to a painter for a while, she knew all about art and and so forth, and she wanted to create. A beautiful home. A home should be beautiful for Unset, as Nichols makes very clear, because the home and the family is where human beings are made and how they are shaped for the rest of their lives. Did you get that too? Yes, I did. And also, that then has profound uh, ramifications for culture as well, that the home and the family uh, are the, 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 the foundation of, of culture. And so she understood this also. And, and why she saw as such a, uh, a damaging thing the, um, machine age that took away from women so much of their domestic arts. And, uh, and then, and then of course the, the, the need for women to work outside of the home. Uh, this ripping a part of the home has had a huge impact on really what the, the, the dissolution of society. And so many of her novels and short stories are about that. And I want to, I'm going to pronounce the name of the home the best I can. Uh, it's Burkebeck, Burkebeck in Lillehammer. And only a year or two ago, there was a wonderful book that was translated into English about Unset and her home. And so the uh, that's how important her home is to uh, understanding Unset in her life. And I want to say this one thing, Vivian. What uh, I, I think you should help me tell the story. Let's talk about Unset's uh, decision to go to Rome she got a grant from the Norwegian government to uh, hone her writing skills in Rome and where she met a married man. Uh, and uh, so you take up the story from there. Well, she'd been attracted to Rome from childhood because, you know, her parents spent some time there as well, her father being an archaeological scholar uh, and Anyway, so she sort of had her heart set on ending up there someday. And yes, after she had become successful as a writer and got this grant, she was able to go. And she discovered the uh, Scandinavian, you know, expat community there in Rome where she met this um, artist, uh, Farstad is his last name. And, uh, but she had... You know, before, this is all before her conversion. I think that needs to be made clear, right? She was raised in... Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. An, an intellectual home uh, that... Uh, and, and, and and steeped in uh, Norwegian mythology and even Greek and Roman mythology. So well, she was an intellectual. She came from an intellectual family. Yes. But unfortunately, because of the early death of her father, uh, a, university of edu- a university education was denied her. She actually had to start working to support her mother and siblings at the age of 16. Well, she went to secretarial uh, school. Yes. And became a secretarial yes. secretary to the head of an electrical company. That's right. And yet she's writing uh, fiction in her spare time. Right. <laughs> she doesn't go out on the town with her friends, fellow secretary. She goes home and she reads and writes. Right. Although she had, she being a keen observer of, of people, you know, yes. she she was very much in touch with the social scene of her own time, uh, and what women in particular 
you know, were interested in and how they talked and so on. And she very realistically could portray these in, um, you know, her, her early work, uh, Jenny in particular, which was published in 1911. And, but her first novels, her first three novels, uh, were sort of, uh, you know, marked by, by the dark tragedy of human love. Um, you know, love, love affairs that don't end well. <laughs> for the well, you've got through Marta Uli which is 1907, which was kind of a, it made her name in sort of a scandalous way, uh, but it's about a secret affair uh, which goes wrong. And like you say, Jenny, which really catapulted her to fame, uh, was about similar, similar adulterous uh, goings on. And, but yet, she she had had no romantic experience of any kind until she got right. to Rome. Right, and then she, and then uh, the, the the romantic experience, you know, this experience of eros in this really madness that takes over your your life that, that you're powerless near almost to resist in falling in love with this married man, uh, and I think they're affair carried on for a few years until he uh, was able to divorce his wife and then they were married and um, it took about two years for him to get a divorce and then they were married and then uh, and then their first child came a year later born in Rome and uh, then then they had a handicapped daughter and about the same time uh, Sigurd Infant welcomed into the family the three children of, of her husband's first marriage. Yeah, Ragna Mo. And it's, it's very important to add this. Her second child was, uh, I guess, retarded. I don't know what the, what do we, what word do we use now, Vivian? Well, I'm not, I know she was handicapped, but I'm not sure in which way, you know, was she, it Well, physically and mentally. Both? Fin- mm-hmm. Physically and mentally handicapped. Mm-hmm. And also, one of the two children from Farstad's first marriage was also similarly handicapped. Yes, a, a son. Yes. Was and also. so she had five children in her home, two of which were handicapped. And as it turns out, Farstad, although he loves his children, spends little or no time with them. He's all he opens up a studio down in in town in Oslo. He flies off to Paris. He flies off to Italy. And he's never there. Right. And eventually, and of course, what you, you know, the income of of a painter and so on, eventually they they end up financially in distress and she's evicted out of their apartment and the children that she sort of quasi-adopted, she had from his first marriage, she had to send to go live with their grandmother and really the the the, it, the thing fell apart <laughs> shall we say it really did fall apart and eventually they were divorced um but all the while that that these events are happening in her domestic life you know there is this deepening at the spiritual level of her understanding of um the human experience, the human experience of love and loss, of sin, of, of, of disappointment, of disillusionment. All these things are deepening, uh, in her mind and in her artistic imagination such that she could produce this amazing novel, Kristen Lawson's Daughter, which you described as the greatest Catholic novel of the 20th century, and yet it was written before she was a Catholic. But this forming of the Catholic way of seeing life is happening simultaneous with her going through these really devastating experiences. You know, I think one thing that Aidan Nichols, Father Nichols, does so well, better than anybody that I've read on Inset, is he picks up the thread of what you call that spiritual growth, that spiritual uh, discovery uh, from her earliest books, including, you know, her first medieval book, Gunnar's Daughter, which is early, 
through her short stories, especially the 1918 short story, Thodolf, which is, the, to my mind, the most powerful pro-life story ever written by anybody. Yes. Uh, and it can be found in her book, The Four Stories, which was translated by Knopf uh, quite a while ago. But I, I urge people, if they just want to taste Unset, read the short story, Thodolf. I mean, he uh, uh, Nichols quotes someone by saying, the story of Helen Johnson's love for a little child she has taken to herself must give up and must give up again is one of Sigrid Unset's loveliest pieces on the theme of mother love. Have you ever read mm-hmm. that, Vivian? I have not. In fact, I, I did not know about it until I read Father Nichols' book. And 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 now now I'm racing to read more Unset and reread. In fact, in fact, I started rereading Kristen Lawley's daughter last night. Couldn't couldn't put it down once I started. And this, and I've read it twice before. But, yeah. Uh, you know, that's what I found when I when I taught it last year. It, it had to be the fifth or sixth time that I read it. Uh, I enjoyed it more than ever. In fact, you know, reading Kristen was part of my becoming Catholic because I was a graduate student at Emory at dinner and an ex-Jesuit novice who was, who was no longer Catholic, he said, I had to read it. Deal. This book was me- meant for you. You have to read Kristen Lovren's Daughter. And I did, and it blew me away. Mm-hmm. And and that was before, was that before the Tina Nunnally translation was available? Bef- because when I... Oh, yeah, all far before. It was the, yeah, the old ch- Chatter translation, which is, which is quite good. And, in fact, what we found when we did our class, we had somebody was was reading that early translation, and they found that, in some passages, which we couldn't figure out, he had the more, the clearer understanding of what was going on in those passages than Nunnally did. Interesting. Even though Nunnally reads better. I mean, I, I recommend the Nunnally far. But there were certain thorny places where looking at his translation really helped us. Now, tell, it, tell our listeners a little about her relationship, early relationship to the woman's movement, to feminism. Well, that, I think, uh, you know, knowing a little bit about this personal history, that at the age of 16, she had to go out and work to support her widowed mother and, and, and siblings. You know, I think she saw that um, uh, with women entering the workforce and uh, having to take up roles that maybe were not traditionally their own, they did deserve a sort of uh, wider participation in for example, the women's vote, for example, you know, that um, they deserved a wider participation in, in society. Uh, but by the same token, uh, the the um, lack of understanding and appreciation of the distinctiveness of being a woman and yes. the, 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 the whole makeup of a woman for motherhood, even if that motherhood is not expressed biologically, uh, that the care of others, which is intrinsic to sort of the womanly essence, if you want to call it that, that this was being uh, disparaged in the women's movement, and uh, that this idea that women historically had been oppressed, all these, you know, the kind of the Marxist class struggle uh, view being put upon the struggle between the sexes and this kind of thing. She she absolutely abhorred this kind of uh, misunderstanding of, uh, of 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 womanliness. And, now, well, she and, was all for voting rights. Yeah, you know, and and right. she, but but she didn't. But she saw that something more fundamental was going on in the suffragette movement that she didn't like, just as you explained. Yes, and. You know, interesting, too, what I said earlier about the age of the machine uh, taking away now so much of what women's work, uh, and she didn't see women's work as equal to drudgery. You know, she saw that 
the work that women do to make lives for others comfortable and beautiful and uh, making a nurturing environment and caring for others. But that this that this is uh, the nobility of 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 female work. You know, this is not a degrading thing. This is this is a beautiful thing. And so she she took exception to that. But this age of the machine, you know, the way uh, Father Nichols describes it on um, on uh, page fifty four, you know, in her view, the real misfortune of women in European society was the machine age, which took away their traditional roles. Only to this degree was feminism justified. These are Father Nichols' words, and I immediately thought of Betty Friedan's feminine mystique. You know the 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 ennui of the of the bourgeois woman in the suburbs with nothing to do because she's got her children in schools and she's got vacuum cleaners and washing machines and dishwashers all these right. things and now she's bored and doesn't have a sense of purpose and now needs to find this purpose in the outside world outside the home there is no life in the home it's become a sterile place and so. You know, there's a certain um, there's a certain sympathy I think that you can have with this condition that women found themselves in, uh, in, in you know, because of modern so-called progress. And uh, he quotes and set some reflections on the suffragette movement. Father does, um, which is in our when, which is in our Ignatius book. Yes, only when the new cultural factor, the machine culture, which man and man alone created, become, became of primary importance in society, did these relationships become unnatural. And a compelling necessity for her to acquire influence over the factors that decide these conditions. So she saw the impetus of the women's movement to have women have a greater role in public decision-making, hence the vote, and these kinds of things. She, she saw that this is really just a necessity of the changing times that had changed uh, a woman's role. She didn't see it as um, some kind of radical, uh, you know, forces of history and progress and all these kinds of things that, that, the, that, the, that, that the left and the Hegelian marks and the interpretation of this sort of thing. She didn't buy into that at all. She simply saw on kind of a very practical level that the role of women had changed and and they needed to change too. However, she had this uh, desire to at the same time retain what could be retained in terms of the fundamental understanding of what a woman is, what she brings to, to the human family, her gifts and and her and her makeup, and that this was also, you know, basically being violently uh, undermined. She began to resist this, right? And, and well, she she she. Uh, I think Father Nichols, one of his greatest contributions in this book, is to show the impact of a biologist named Carl von Linne, L-I-N-N-E, on Unset's journey. Because Linné was a biologist who was against the modern tendency to, to toss out the Aristotelian concept of organism and teleology and everything, you know, moves toward an end. That's right. Uh, whatever level of nature you're in. And uh, he, I mean, she was a profound student of this book and of this particular thinker. And this this sort of placement of the Aristotelian understanding of of all things move toward an end, a good that is imprinted on their nature, really was a step toward becoming Catholic for her. Yes, uh, she she herself called Carl von uh, Linnea uh, <clears throat> a secular patron saint. She yes. referred to him in her life as a secular patron saint, and. You're absolutely right. His conception of nature, order, harmony, and reason, uh, in the words of Father Nichols here, um, you know, had a significant uh, impact on her, on her intellectual understanding of the world. Uh, uh, you know, and and now this this uh, 
as you said, leading to her conversion. Well, you know, I think we can safely call her, right, a Christian realist, right? Someone who, um, Absolutely. the starting point is not some, you know, idealized utopianism. She was a non-romantic. Exactly. It's a non-romantic view of reality, seeing in reality uh, truths that 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 we, we ignore to our peril, basically, and we will suffer the consequences if we do. <laughs> and uh, and yet, by the same token, seeing all all imbued somehow with God's goodness and grace, and moving toward what the Creator intends it to move toward. And so, seeing it falling and fallen and in need of grace, yes, but the orderness, the orderliness, and the harmony and the the goodness that's inherent in the created world. And that all fits with, you can see why Father Nichols loved writing this book, being a Dominican and a Tomist. Oh, you can, you, the enthusiasm comes through every page. It really I, does. It's, it's so good. I'm, Vivian Dudrow, an editor at Ignatius for many, many years, and I are talking about Ignatius' book by Father Aidan Nichols, Sigrid Unset, Reader of Hearts. you got to have this book if you're... If you want to read about the greatest of the Catholic writers, the greatest novel in the 20th century Christian law majority, you got to have this book. We're going to take a short break. I'll be back with Vivian Dudrow and more about this book in just a moment. I'm back with Vivian Dudrow, editor at Ignatius Press, about Ignatius' new book on Sigurd Unset by Aidan Nichols. Can't praise it too highly. And between getting off the last part of our interview and coming back, Vivian and I were talking about, well, what caused Unset's conversion? What was there a, a tipping point? And Vivian, it occurs to me that it, it's a lot like the conversion of Jacques and Raïs Maritain. If you recall, they met in Paris and they made a suicide pact that if they didn't find some sense of the absolute in life within a year, they would commit suicide. Of course, that's what young people do, right? Well, they started at the suggestion of Charles Peggy. They started attending the lectures of Henri Bergson, who provided them the notion of élan vital, which is rooted in an absolute. But then when they were led to Léon Bois, you know, conversion was complete. It seems to me that what we could, the analogy here is that von Linné was the Henri Bergson to Sigrid Unset. Yes. In effect, Nichols, Father Nichols has, uh, on page 81 of his book, um, you know, investigating Catholicism, she came, as she put it, to the measure she had unconsciously approached before. She found in Catholicism uh, the epistemic type. Well, that's sort of a mouthful. But in other words, that reality and knowledge really are connected to each other, you know. Um, Reality. In other words, epistemic type means knowing the truth lies in grasping the object not in a subjective recounting of it or a subjective imposition of of knowledge upon reality. Correct. And so the he a father goes on, in her acerbic judgment, the modern view of the world was to take the world as dreamland. Her respect for nature's reality status and for nature's order and goal directedness derived from uh Linne or Linnea in the Swedish pronunciation, uh, predisposed her to oppose cultural modernism in all its forms. She, I think she really saw the choice, as Evelyn Waugh did, uh, his famous quote about um, he really saw the, that he had the choice between Christianity or chaos. I, I, I think... Um, I think that's right. ...to a similar point. It's either Christianity or chaos. It's... it's because where the modern world is going, I mean, to remind everyone, this is between the wars. World War One was already devastating enough, and now Europe is on the brink, you know, heading toward, you know, fascism over here and communism over here, and 
war is certain and, again. And, could, and, you know, Vivian, we could throw in the fact that she had already become a scholar, an amateur scholar of the Middle Ages itself. Yes. And she knew what Catholicism was. She knew the general outlines of its doctrine, its tradition, its importance in Western civilization. So it's not as if she just learned to connect what she learned in Lena, and she connected it to what Catholicism was. How about that? Yes, definitely, because she saw in the Middle Ages, because of their way of seeing the world through the faith, uh, that, 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 that these things are all connected. God became incarnate in the world. God created the world. The world was in a fallen state, but God returned to the world he made out of love and was redeeming it and elevating it back into himself. You know, this whole movement that's captured in the art of the Middle Ages and the, 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 everything in the culture is imbued with this understanding of reality. And she was very much attracted to that. And, you know, her first work of fiction that never was published because it was rejected by publishers at the time was, in fact, set in the Middle Ages. And during this process of conversion, she's working on which novel? Kristen Lavin's Daughter. And then right after that, she begins the um, other novels set in the Middle Ages, The Master The Tetralogy. Yes, or also called All of... Uh, Andusen. Now, Andusen. now that's been retranslated by Tina Nunley as well. Just well, only the first three volumes. There's still another volume oh, left. Oh, there's still another volume to go. In any yeah. case, I was a little bit excited about uh, Father Nichols' book being published at about the time that, that the Master of Hest Viking is being redone. Oh, well, listen, I've already read- started reading the available volumes because that's a big book. It used to be called Master of Hest Viking in the old translation. But I, I want you to turn in, in Nichols' book to page 84. And I want you to read, there's an excerpt from Unset's essay on how I became Catholic mm-hmm. and why I am one today. I want you to read the quote there that runs down to footnote 74. Read that to our listeners. Okay, let me, uh, let's see. Uh, she opened her essay, How I Became a Catholic and Why I'm One Today, by admitting there may well be many routes to the Church. Okay, hers was the way of truth. The choice is between seeking absolute truth on the one hand and on the other contenting oneself with a dreamland, similar to what I quoted before. In the real world into which we are born, so she explained, the essence and properties of things are already given, tied together by laws. The only way in which the deterministic factors in life don't enchain the individual is when he seeks to find a path through that entire network of causes and contexts. Um, accepting an absolute truth enables one to be free on the condition that one keeps up an unending struggle against the powers, first among them the temptation to return to the land of dreams. Though it requires the grace of God, that, quote, mystical and supernatural power theologians call grace, and quote, finding in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life with the church as his representative answers to a radical, indeed inescapable, human need. And she felt that need keenly, both in her own personal, the the, the kind of shambles that her personal life had become and what she's seen going on in the society around her. Uh, By the way, here's one of the little nuggets that I had missed in Unset's biography on the next page you know all she knew from contemporary religion was the Lutheran version of Jesus which she said was basically whatever mores of the town leadership was kind of a subjective thing not challenging then she read the French uh, Vie de Jésus by Ernst Renan The Life of Jesus and he said, and Nichols comments, she received her first intimation that the alternative Jesus, the Jesus of liberalism, was unreal. Mm-hmm. So there was a little moment when she read this book, and her understanding of Christ was corrected by someone who was uh, had written a critique of the, Jesus, the humanistic Jesus as 
moral model of liberalism. Right, and that went hand in glove with the idea of man's perfectibility and man's in, in inherent goodness. Not that we weren't created good, but that somehow we're just good simply. And she could see that that was certainly false. And so then, then on page 87, of Father Nichols says, what she rejected was the generally concomitant belief in human perfectibility. No, right. man is abidingly stupid and intelligent, good and evil, courageous and cowardly, and every person is by nature unstable. Yes, you know, I think, now? you know, when I read, reread Kristen last year, the thing that uh, my class and I kept talking about was the reality of the fall, the reality of fallen human nature. And that, and also, we didn't use that to judge people. We didn't use that as a stick to beat over the head of the characters. In other words, because we're all in that condition, right? I mean, we're all there. And, so this is the realism, and mm-hmm. Nichols calls it the neo-realism to compare the neo-romanticism. And in other words, she, in her novels, especially beginning with Kristen in, in 1920, finished in 1923, 1922, she became Catholic in 1924, uh, has characters, all of whom fought in certain ways. There's nobody in that book, no matter how much we admire them, how heroic they seem, how important. Even Brother Edvin, who's sort of the spiritual uh, center in some ways of the book, all have secrets, or maybe secrets that become public, that are serious sins. Yes. And, and she also, uh, in Kristen, what we see also is that, you know, the early Kristen at the beginning sees sin as, uh, you know, the sort of loss of respect, self-respect, respect of the community that causes them shame. You know, there really isn't the deepening realization of sin being um, something that you're actually responsible for. And, and that the only cure for it is not to hide it, but to confess it, right? So that yes. you see that initial story in the garden, right? The first thing Adam and Eve do after they fall is to hide, right? And, and not knowing that, no, by the very confession of their sin and weakness, that is the way that they're going to be led out of it and back into good relation with God and, 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 and their fellows. And so, but that takes Time for Kristen to learn in the course of the novel, right? That that uh, this realization of the true condition that she is in, that is shared by everyone else. We're all in this boat together, so to speak. And the only way out is the humility to admit that. And then to yeah. Oh, by the way, God's grace. By the way, Nichols makes a wonderful point that it wasn't uh, uh, Kristen Lovren's daughters. Rebellion. It was her unwillingness to receive humility that led right. to her her destiny. And let me just say this to those who are listening who've never read Kristen. Kristen Lama's daughter, we, we meet, she's a young child. Her She has a beloved father named Lavrons. She has uh, a, the family... Uh, fixes her up with a very dashing young knight to marry Simon Dar. And they send her down to a convent in town to spend her last year before she gets married to get an education. And while she's there, she meets this romantic hero on horseback who saves her and her friend from from, uh, some young men who have, you might say, bad intentions toward them and she immediately and he's a he's a face man as we used to call he's handsome he's dashing he's strong heroic and so forth and they fall instantly in love and she actually has an affair with him while living at the convent and this is sort of where the whole uh 
what do you want to call it, self-deception, lies, uh, excuses, begins. But this, we think it's, this doesn't just work itself out between Kristen and her parents in Ireland, the young the man. It, it ends up rippling through everyone's life mm-hmm. that is connected with theirs, right? That's right. Oh, yes, it has repercussions uh, uh, through the whole community and then through the progression of the story, even in their own relationship. What happens to their own relationship, Kristen and Erwin, once they're finally married? Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't end there, right? Uh, uh, this rippling effect of, of of sin. But what 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 uh, what Unset so brilliantly, I think, reveals is that. The sin isn't the worst part of it. <laughs> the worst part of it is the refusal to admit it, and the refusal to admit that that uh, that you're in a way we're all among all of us sinners. We really are among equals here. I mean, one of the things that we do when we sin is to try to justify that well, maybe someone else's sin is worse than ours. You know, you always hear, "Well, at least I didn't murder anybody." You know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> that kind of justification, right? And and uh, and what do we see in the Garden of Eden too? They blame each other, right? No one's taking responsibility. No one's having the humility to say, "I was weak. I I acted willfully and foolishly and selfishly. I'm sorry." You know, it's the resistance of that that's kind of even worse than the sin. Yes, and the, and, and Nichols emphasizes that Unset shows how sins are interconnected. Yes. And that comes out more in The Master of Hesfiken, as he explains. And as soon as I'm done rereading, Kristen, I'll reread The Master of Hesfiken. Well, I'll tell you what, when you when you finish it, let's do a show on it. Okay. Happily. Or we could even do it one volume at a time. Oh, I, I, oh there's, there's really no end to how much you can... No, I think I think it deserves I think it deserves one show per volume because they're big, thick volumes that make up the tritology there. And so the but to go back, let's go back to Kristen for a second. Yes, let's go back to Kristen. Tell our listeners briefly how she ends her life. How does her, you know, this whole three part uh, three part novel? is a journey. It's very Dante-esque in that sense. Oh, yes. Where does she end up? Tell her, let's our, let our listeners know. Well, spoiler alert, you know, uh, yeah. uh, after the death of her husband, uh, she ends up uh, entering a convent, and then comes the Black Plague, and, and she actually, uh, do I dare say how she dies? I mean, it seems like to spoil it. Um, and, uh, but she actually acts heroically during the play. And so now you see also, you know, that self-will that got her into so much trouble as a young woman, in God's hands, that's a very powerful thing. That the, the, Once we give our will to God and let him do with it what he really wants, now, now thank goodness she got one, because it's because she's so strong that she resists, that, she, that she's undaunted during the plague. And, and does some very heroic things at the cost of her life. But the most, uh, the most incredible thing that Unset does at this part of the story is how, uh, as she's dying, the imprint of her wedding band on her finger, she takes off her wedding ring and gives it to someone, and the imprint is still there. And she takes tremendous joy and consolation in the fact that she will die before the imprint of her wedding band is gone from her finger. In other words, she now sees how everything that happened in her life, all the sorrows and tragedies and tragic misunderstandings and ruptures of relationships and breaking of fidelity and all these things that happened in the course of her life, she never was out of God's hands. That really, like, Verna knows at the end of Diary of the Country Priest, all is grace, really. For her to have that vision at the end is so moving. I was practically crying reading just the description of it that Nichols gives us in his book, Sugar and Insert Reader Cards. I mean, I, <laughs> I guess I'm just as 
know, big saucy. You know, I can't. By, by the way, Vivian, crying. you you will not be surprised to hear I'm teaching a course on Bernanos this fall. Oh, well. Because, I, you know, I just had to keep going with the great Catholic novelists. I had done right, O'Connor, yeah. then I did Unset, and now i got to do Bernanos. Well, and what you see then, too, Deal, is how they're all connected, because they are all drawing from the same well. They're all, they're, it's like a communion of saints. Yeah. In these, among these writers. They are in communion with each other because they are all in communion with this other thing they discovered, the truth of God and the world. And but but, it, but it's a truth that, that is not containing deceptions about human frailty and he, the inability to be perfected by social governmental programs. Well, this is why, this is the difference between the modern view, if you want to call it that, of reality and the view of reality even in the Middle Ages where, yes, there's God and there's man, world and there's man and they are interpenetrated by God everywhere, but they are not God. Man is not God. The world is not God. History is not God. No, God is God and the world is the world and we are who we are and God interpenetrates everything and is bringing everything to its ultimate consummation that he alone knows and governs. And to, to try to make them into one thing, that's, that's where all these utopian dreams come from and the horrible evils that committed in trying to realize them. Well, you know... This project uh, of making man into God. Nichols... Does uh, does something that I greatly approve of. In the very end, he quotes Erasmo Leva Maricakis. Yes. His essay, and I'm going to read it because Erasmo, as you know, is a good longtime friend of mine, and I asked him to write this essay, uh, and about which Father Nichols said this is a true evaluation. Uh, Erasmo writes. The struggle of self-conquest probably defines the moral and mystical substance of all Unset's writings. How the Beatitudes, thirst for justice, purity of heart, poverty of spirit, joy and suffering, persecution for Christ's sake, gradually come to be the operative principles in a human heart, dramatically replacing ambition, lust, arrogance, and the spirit of self-promotion. For Unset, no other process or evolution is more worthy of man. Nothing else captures her imagination more readily as a theme worthy, a theme worthy of artistic portrayal. That's right. That's you know, right. O- only Erasmo can write something like that. <laughs> that is beautiful. And because every person has to take this journey for himself, you know, this process, this lifelong process of purification. You know, you mentioned Dante what and the, and the Divine Comedy. What is that? But the journey of the soul and through the process of the purification of... And, and Urzad understands this, the purification of Eros. You know, she sees that the, 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 the driving passion in a person's life, it's not that that in and of itself is bad or wrong or whatever, but if it's not purified and directed to God, ultimately. It leads to destruction. You are, I think, saying something that Father Nichols said in another way on page 135, talking about the ending of Christen. He says, the work ends with an affirmation of an ontological mystery, only insofar as a man is caught up in the fire of God's love can he truly be. That's right. So all of our love has to pass through this fire. And the fire is love, actually. I mean, we, when we think of fire and we flinch from it, we, you know, we feel pain and whatever, but the, but the fire of God's love, it only hurts because we're resisting it. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Oh. Believe me, it hurts. 
That's right, because we can't help but, you know, and Kristen's resistance is a whole novel, right? That That's what, that's the cause of all of her suffering, really. She, she really... But it, but her, her suffering leads her happiness, and also her suffering unveils the lies and deceptions which are all around her, even with her father and mother. Yes. And her... That's- and. With with her father's brother, who's a priest, so all of a sudden you you know you're whenever you read a a novel, I think you look for a hero, right? Well, one yeah. by one, everyone you thought was heroic, all of a sudden you find out at bottom they're not. They all have clay feet. Yeah, that's right, and that's that Christian realism that that she has in all of her novels that that yes uh, so and yet acknowledging the clay feet doesn't turn us into you know just no cynics because we have the hope this is where christian hope comes in that we are being purified in the fire we are being made into the creatures that god intended from the beginning and it is a process and it It gives us a true starting a true honest starting point. And if you don't see your life in that way, you're you're going to end up in some dreamland, just as uh, Father Nichols has said. You're, you're, you're going to not really realize the truth of yourself, and, and you're going to miss out following some phantasm you've created about yourself in the world. Well, you know, Vivian, we've come to the eventually. we've come to the end of our time, and I hope you will convey to Father Nichols what has been said about his fabulous book, and I, uh, I will continue to recommend it to anybody who's interested in Unset. But the title of it is Sigrid Unset, Reader of Hearts, by Father Aidan Nichols, O.P. Dominican, and Vivian. Once again, I. I really thank you for being on Church and Culture. It's just such a delight to talk to you. Oh, it's a delight to talk to you, too, especially about things we both love so much. Well, let me know as you read through Olav Andunson, and we'll talk about it. I will let you know. Thank you. And to all of you who are listening, I'll be back on this day at this time next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.